Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. It is great to be back behind the mic again. And, as promised, it's time to move the narrative forward a bit. It's time to move away from the world of the Congress of Vienna and Napoleon. Instead, I want you to imagine a tranquil Pacific heaven, sandy beaches, warm ocean and gentle breezes. This is in as many ways as close to paradise as humans have ever come. Plenty of fish in the seas, a world away from the horrors of Europe in 1815, a Europe where the Napoleonic Wars were entering their final, lethal stages. The battle for the Enlightenment seemed to be on a knife edge in Europe, and the seeds of it were clinging on in the fledgling United States. Everything seemed to revolve around people in Europe, if you take the narrow view, one that is heavily centred on Western civilization. Jane Austen published Emma. The War of 1812 officially ended. The British conquered Ceylon. Countries in Europe were being created and breakthroughs in technology were being made. All in all, it would seem like the old school of history, the view of the age of man shaping the world, was particularly applicable. In Java, in April 1815, One particular man, Thomas Stamford Raffles, the lieutenant governor, was going to have a very, very bad day, even in paradise. In fact, he was going to have a series of them. They would sharply crush the notion that something as insignificant as mankind was the cause of the great events of the world in 1815. Napoleon might have restarted the wars and appeared to shape the course of history. But in fact, nature was going to do something spectacular and heartbreaking. Raffles was an interesting guy. He was an aristocrat and had been a key player in the conquest of Java from the French. He was appointed lieutenant governor during the 45-day campaign to take Java from the French. He was clever and able to negotiate local politics, but at the same time, he led military actions against the native Javanese who resisted. He crushed the Javanese princes and looted a royal archive. He also seized nearby territories for the British in case Java was to be returned to the Dutch after the Napoleonic Wars ended. In this respect, he appeared much like the typical image of a heartless European conqueror. He had another side, though. He was interested in history, arranging the cataloguing of numerous historic sites of importance in Java. He instituted farming reforms and made modest attempts at curtailing the native slave trade, although he did own slaves himself. In his future governorships, 
he would go further to abolish slavery entirely, as well as writing A History of Java, and going on to found Singapore. He would write a book on zoology and be instrumental in the founding of London Zoo. You can see in him the prototype for many of the Victorian empire builders, who often curiously blended extreme military hawkishness with immense intellectual drive and curiosity. On the 5th of April, 1815, Mount Tambora, located in the north of Suwamba Island, near Java, would begin the first in a series of mega-eruptions. These would have devastating impacts, not just on the local area, but eventually around the world. Whatever our modern views on colonial military conquest, it's important to recognise the sheer talent of men like Raffles. Yet during the eruption of Mount Tambora, it was painfully clear how little power or influence even a man of the energy and intellect like Raffles could actually have. Between the 5th of April and the 10th of April 1815, Mount Tambora would erupt three times, three main times. These eruptions would be some of the largest in recorded human history. They were on a scale that can only realistically be described using language like biblical or cataclysmic. There was a great article in Wired magazine that gave a fantastic scientific summary of the sheer energy involved. I'm going to quote it now. You can find it online from wired.com. Quote, An explosive eruption like Tambora releases huge amounts of energy. A rough estimate for the 1815 event A rough estimate for the 1815 event is 1.4 to the power 1,020 joules of energy being released across the first few days of the eruption. One tonne of TNT releases 4.2 to the power of 109 joules. So this eruption was 33 billion tonnes of TNT. That's 2.2 million little boys, the first atomic bomb. The US uses about 1.17 to the power 1,020 joules of power each year, at least in 2007. So Tambora, in the span of a few days, released the same amount of energy as the consumption of the entire United States in one year, or one quarter of the world's annual energy consumption. If you want to compare it to other geological events, the 2004 Indonesian earthquake that generated the Boxing Day tsunami releases 110 petajoules of energy. That's a 1,015 joules. That still leaves Tambora as 1,200 times more powerful than a magnitude 9.3 earthquake, end quote. What do those numbers mean, honestly? I don't know. The human mind can't really cope with that kind of scale. We can't grasp it. Put it this way, the explosions of Mount Tambora could be heard as far away as 1,000 615 miles in Sumatra, 
That's like an explosion going off in New York City that could be heard in Denver, Colorado. Scientists can use the Volcanic Explosivity Index to record how explosive an eruption is. And remember, this scale we're about to talk about is logarithmic, running from 0 to 8. That means each step up the scale is 10 times more powerful than the last. So let's put Mount Tambora on the scale and relate it to a few other eruptions you might have heard of. So the basic on-all-the-time eruptions in Hawaii that you often see those beautiful pictures of, they clock in at about a 0 to 1 on the scale. The Suferi Hills Volcanoes in Montserrat on about a 3, while stepping up to a 4 on the scale includes major eruptions like, and yes, I'm going to get this wrong, we all know it, Ijajalajokul from 2010 in Iceland. No, no, I, I make no apology. I cannot speak Icelandic. I know I got that wrong. Anyway, that was a huge media event. It grounded air travel in Europe. It was on all of the news, and I'm sure we all remember it. And those were big disruptive events. But that only got up to a number four on the scale. Stepping up to a five. Well, now that includes some terrifying events like Mount Vesuvius and Mount St. Helens. And if you remember the Mount St. Helens eruption, it was staggering. I can still remember the impression it made on me as a young child watching news reports about Mount St. Helens. Moving up another step to six gets to Mount Pinatubo, or Pinatubo, which cooled global temperatures by about one degrees. And it also includes Mount Krakatoa. Okay, I think you're beginning to get an idea now, because now we're stepping up to level seven, which includes monsters like Mount Tambora. You have not experienced anything like this in your lifetime, and you should be profoundly grateful. Tambora is the only confirmed VEI-7 eruption during human recorded history. There's a Minoan eruption of Thera in the middle of the second millennium B that might have been. It's been suspected, although not proved. The eruption of the Salamas volcano in 1257 might maybe have been a seven on the scale, and it might have been powerful enough to help trigger the mini ice age. The reality is then that no human being on earth today has experienced anything as powerful as a VEI-7 volcano, and Mount Tambora is the only confirmed incident that we know of. A VEI-7 eruption is capable of changing the climate on a global scale. It can end civilizations. Raffles and men like him would be in the middle, observing and trying to pick up the pieces. Then the changes would spread around the world. We will look at the wider impact in the next couple of episodes, and these would include the spread of cholera, changes in the art and literature to reflect mass famine, increased migration in the United States, deaths worldwide, flooding, devastating changes to weather, including reduced sunlight, 
for months. For now, we're going to look at the eruption in this episode and its immediate impact in more detail. The amount of material blasted out into the air caused a zone of darkness covering a radius of about 600 kilometres. That's 373 miles. If you're struggling with that distance, imagine the distance from New York City to Pittsburgh, Ohio, or from London to North Glasgow in Scotland. Then turn it from daytime to nighttime and leave it like that for two whole days. Now try to imagine you have no idea how volcanoes work or any kind of modern science. No electric lights or backup generators. No satellites or radios. Reserve communications. Imagine instead that you live on an island in the Pacific. There is a massive noise and then darkness falls. If you are educated, like Raffles, with a scientific background, you might look for natural causes, but you would still be wholly ignorant of almost the entire scientific knowledge you need to have to have an understanding of what is happening and what is going to happen. Even though the great Benjamin Franklin had recently proposed that volcanoes might affect the weather in some way, fully understanding of what a volcano does and how it works was over a century away. For the uneducated and for the bulk of the native populations in the local area, this would all be framed and understood in more religious terms. Remember that beautiful scene I told you to picture at the beginning? Well, it was gone, blasted out of existence by the titanic forces of Mount Tambora. Erased. Volcanoes have a number of destructive characteristics. There is the initial explosion, which contains immense energy. This not only forces magma to the surface, but also rips rocks from the volcanic chambers free and from the surface. There is also the massive, devastating pyroclastic flows. Waves of superheated gas, containing gas, ash and rock, that can travel at hundreds of kilometres an hour. Often people nearby have only a few moments before they get hit and killed. Humans are simply too fragile to survive close to a VEI-7 explosion. Even those further away are in terrible danger. The immense heat and energy can cause hurricanes of ash and debris. Toxic gases can kill thousands and the thick clouds of ash can become so heavy that breathing is impossible or people and buildings can be crushed under the weight. If near water, devastating tsunamis can be created. In the case of Tambora, one travelled 500 kilometres, finally hitting the east coast of Java with a two-metre-high wave. There is also a following wave of rock, ash and pumice can rain down for days. This choking ash can mean that plant and animal life is swiftly killed, with rivers being turned into an ash-filled soup. Within 24 hours, the ash cloud thrown up by Mount Tambora covered an area the size of Australia. By the end of the year, the ash would have risen and spread out into the stratosphere to form an invisible but powerful veil of ash around the entire planet. This would reflect sunlight and drastically cool 
global temperatures. We are lucky, if that's the right word, to have witnesses like Raffles to record the event. Perhaps another time in human history, we wouldn't know about it except from the geological record. Even lacking the most basic equipment, these observational accounts are both invaluable and chilling. For example, Raffles says he was informed by an employee that, quote, at 10pm of the 1st of April, we heard a noise resembling a cannonade, which lasted at intervals till 9 o'clock next day. It continued at times loud and others resembling distant thunder. But on the night of the 10th, the explosions became truly tremendous, frequently shaking the earth and sea violently. Towards morning, they again slackened and continued to lessen gradually till the 14th when they ceased altogether. On the morning of the 3rd of April, ashes began to fall like fine snow, and in the course of the day, they were half an inch deep on the ground. From that time till the 11th, the air was constantly impregnated them, to such a degree that it was unpleasant to stir out of doors. On the morning of the 11th, the opposite shore of Bali was completely obscured in a dense cloud, which gradually approached the Java shore and was dreary and terrific. By 1pm, candles were necessary. By 4pm, it was pitch dark. And so it continued until 2 o'clock in the afternoon of the 12th, ashes continuing to fall abundantly. They were 8 inches in depth at this time. End quote. Perhaps you think of ash as a bit of dust. A minor inconvenience. Well, when it comes to volcanoes, it isn't. A volcanic ash cloud can contain carbon dioxide, sulfates, sulfur dioxide, hydrochloric acid and hydrofluoric acid, as well as various minerals and fibres. All of these substances can cause horrific lung damage. Perhaps you could visualise it more like this. Imagine you go and light five giant barbecues in your back garden. Now wait until the heat has died down enough that the coals are grey and just about approachable. Now get inside a small shed, say, and then have two friends tip the whole lot onto your head and then they shut you inside. Picture the heat, the fact you can't go anywhere. The ash fills your eyes and burns your lungs. Every breath you take is congested and a fiery agony. Imagine the pain and twisted horror as you realise there's no escape and no help. This is the world of the survivor in their last moments. If you are far enough away, then perhaps it is a grain of cold ash that brings darkness, like Raffles described. 12,000 human beings died in the initial eruptions, in ash falls, pyroclastic flows and clouds of superheated gas up to a 1,000 degrees centigrade. Some of their carbonized remains were buried under the lava. In 19th century Java in the Pacific, there were no international rescue services that could help. No cars or planes to evacuate. No aid workers being flown in. No dried food supplies and water tankers. No emergency generators. Nothing. One of the most devastating natural disasters in human history was striking at a time 
when humans hadn't even fully mastered primitive steam engines in any but the most basic ways. On the back of this, devastation were the tsunamis and the flooding triggered by the eruptions, and reaching up higher into the atmosphere was a layer of ash that would bring darkness to the region. Now I really, really need to remind you that the whole world in the 19th century was basically either agrarian, pastoral or hunter-gatherer, with little in the way of food or water storage as we would understand it today. So that meant most food production was highly localised. Disruption to local food production, even for a single season, could result in real hardship, even if the wider country the area was located in was still not experiencing famine, local famines could and did erupt savagely. The areas covered by ash were absolutely out of production. Death by starvation was absolutely guaranteed for a large number of survivors. There was nothing they could do. They were doomed. And that's hard to get your head around today. There are no accounts from them. I can only picture some of the ash-covered survivors walking round in a daze, blinded and slowly starving, unable to find water or relief, the ash blighting their lungs. Raffles dispatched Lieutenant Philip to try to see what was going on and give aid. Lieutenant Philip discovered entire villages emptied and desperate people reduced to eating plant stems and palm leaves. The Raja of Sagar told Lieutenant Phillips during the initial investigations, quote, Between 9 and 10 p.m. ashes began to fall, and soon after a violent whirlwind ensued, which blew down nearly every house in the village of Saga, carrying the tops and light parts along with it. In the part of Saga adjoining Mount Tambora, its effects were much more violent, tearing up by the roots the largest trees and carrying them into the air, together with men, houses, cattle, and whatever else came within its influence. This will account for the immense number of floating trees seen at sea. The sea rose nearly 12 feet higher than it had ever been known to be before, and completely spoiled the only small spots of rice lands in Saga, sweeping away houses everything within its reach, end quote. An entry from the British Naval Chronicle in 1815, July to December, volume 34, shows how dreadful the local situation was. This is a bit of a long quote, so bear with me. Quote, Eruption of Mount Tomboro. Extract of a letter dated 29th of May, 1815, from Batavia, from a merchant of that place. We have had one of the most tremendous eruptions of the mountain Tomboro that ever perhaps took place in any part of the world. This mountain is situated on the island of Sabara and is distant from Batavia not less than 350 miles. We heard the explosions here distinctly and had some of the ashes it was totally dark at Makassar, long after the sun was up, and at noon, 
at Soabaya, the sun succeeded in enlightening the good folks so as to allow them to see some yards around. Ashes lay at Makassa, which is 250 miles for Sambawa, one and a half inches deep. Captain Fenn of the Dispatch and Captain Eatwell of the Benares, who have visited the island since the eruptions, both declared that the anchorage is much changed and that they found the sea for many miles around the island so completely covered with the trunks of trees, pumice stone, etc., as he was told, that a village was inundated and had three fathoms of water over it. Great numbers of the miserable inhabitants had perished, and others die daily. The crops of paddy, rice, had been utterly destroyed over a great part of the island, so that the situation of the unfortunate survivors will be really pitiable, end quote. Lieutenant Philip would add to the horror, stating, quote, The extreme misery to which the inhabitants have been reduced is shocking to behold. There was still on the roadside the remains of several corpses and the marks of many others where they had been interred. The village was almost entirely deserted, the houses fallen down, the surviving inhabitants having dispersed in search of food, end quote. As the locals reeled and the Europeans struggled to think of a meaningful response, the cloud of ash rose inexorably up into the atmosphere. For some of the immediate local tribes, the event could only be understood in religious terms. And the further away from the eruption, the less knowledge there was of it. And the local impacts would be devastating causing immediate deaths of around 70,000 people from starvation or lack of water, on top of the 12,000 that had been immediately killed in the eruption. Some villages literally sank. Cattle and horses died in droves, and rich rice fields were destroyed. Temperatures plummeted and many people were plunged into darkness. Officials reported having to light candles during the day to work. Tsunamis wrecked coastal regions. Worse though, the immense disruption to the South Asian monsoon would cause famines and create the conditions in India for the rise of the great scourge of the Victorian age and perhaps its most famous disease, cholera, a disease that will continue to wreak havoc even today. The massive famines in China weakened government control and led to massive rebellions against the Qing dynasty. The knock-on effect of this, it has been suggested, was to allow the region of Yuna to become a Chinese narco-state and it would play a central role in global poppy production. In turn influencing Victorian Britain's opium wars. Sadly, most of the sources from this period are from the more insulated aristocracy. But as you could see from the quote of the Raja, even the rich suffered, of course. But we don't have the same local accounts from famine-stricken peasants or workers in Southeast Asia as we do, say, from the Irish population during the terrible Irish famines. People around the world would be struck 
by freak weather in ways they couldn't understand or deal with. Ireland, Switzerland, America were extremely hard hit, as we will see next episode and the one after. During these episodes on the Mount Tambora and the climate disruption, we will see the massive changes it wreaks on human civilization and how it changes the very direction of history itself. Join me next time as we see what happens to the world as summer itself fails and the weather seems to dive into insanity. Kings, emperors, peasants or soldiers, no one and nowhere would be untouched and the impact would have far-reaching consequences for the shape of history. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye and I bid you adieu until next time.